Greetings all, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the city that always asks, what up, though? And that is Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host with the most down-to-earth archivist ever, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. How are things? I'm great. How are you, Dan? You like that? What up, though? I did like that. Yes. <laughs> it's a very Detroit um, saying. I, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. I so. did not so I did not realize to completely <laughs> completely hijack this. I did not realize that oh I'm just going to sneak right past you was such a Michigan thing and it is absolutely something that I have said my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't I never... realize it until it started showing up in memes like a year ago. I didn't realize that either. Oh, am I going to sneak be up behind you? Is that so oh. like when you're in the grocery store someone says that to you? Yeah. Yeah. And it's huh. O-P-E, O-P. 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 Oh, that's I'm just going to sneak there. right past you. Yes. All right. Okay. I like that. <laughs> the more things we learn about Michigan, the better. So, <laughs> And it is springtime here. It's finally feeling good, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I enjoy it. Flowers are out. Michigan's getting better. And it's May. And I always like that. So, Everybody, I hope everybody had a great May Day celebration in honor of working folks worldwide. But also in May, in the United States, it is Labor History Month. And in honor of Labor History Month, we are going to air an episode talking about a man who had the constant sense of fairness. And that was Mr. Leonard Woodcock. And it's coming to us via an interview that was conducted by our very own UAW archivist, Gavin Strassel, with Sharon Woodcock. All right. For those who really don't know who Leonard Woodcock was, he was president of the UAW. He was an envoy to China in 1977 and the first ambassador for that country. Then after that, he became an academic. Not bad for a kid who dropped out of college during the Great Depression, got a job as a machine assembler, worked 12-hour days, seven days a week for 35 cents an hour at the Detroit Gear and Machine Company, where he did immediately join the union. Now, not to get into many details, because we don't have that much time. But uh, 10 years later, he found himself as the UAW's international representative and closely allied with Walter Ruther. And when Walter Ruther became president of the UAW, he named Woodcock as the administrative assistant, as well as he became a regional director a little later. Now, after the tragic death of Walter Ruther on May 9th, 1970, Woodcock became uh, and was elected president of the UAW. And he led that union through a lengthy strike against GM, which won for auto workers cost of living protections, among other things. But this podcast is mostly about his time in China with his second wife, Sharon, and the ties he bound there. Among his many quotes is how he viewed diplomacy, which I really like. And he could be used whether you're at the collective bargaining table or during a diplomatic dialogue. And he said, quote, the essence of democracy is not simply to listen with pleasure to the things which you agree, but to listen with civility to the things which you disagree. Now, this interview is pretty long, guys. And so this one's going to be part one right now. And so without further ado, here is Gavin Strassel, UAW archivist extraordinaire, talking with Sharon Woodcock about the life of Leonard Woodcock in China. Yeah. Oh, and the special surprise. You have to hear the special surprise. What's the special surprise? When's the special surprise? When do I have to listen to our podcast? Uh. Well, Dan, you always listen to our podcast. Every single one. (laughs) Just to hear how goofy I actually am. (laughs) Okay, Dan. So 
I've got some big news. This is our 50th episode of this podcast. So to celebrate, Barb made us some new music. Surprise! Who was Leonard Woodcock and how did you two meet? Leonard Woodcock was my husband, and he and uh, the two of us met when he came to China um, at the behest of uh, President Jimmy Carter in 19, July of 1977 to negotiate normalization between our two countries. The door had been held open for the process of normalizing from the time that um, Nixon, uh, President Nixon, and um, uh, Henry Kissinger had negotiated the Shanghai communique, and Leonard was the fourth appointment to the liaison office that had been established. And he, um, President Carter had he had agreed to go and negotiate if President Carter would take action for normal relations within his first term, early in his first term. And President Carter pro uh, agreed to that uh, request, and Leonard came in July of '77 to Beijing, China, and I was there, um, had been there since um, November, December of 1976 as a Foreign Service nurse to open uh, the medical unit aspect of what would become the embassy, and. I was able to go to the Monday morning staff meetings because I was the head of the and the only um, person with medical uh, office and uh, he of course was the ambassador and I had the end seat and he had the seat opposite me of this long table and he served a good cup of coffee and so we made eyes at each other for a while and I didn't know him and he didn't know me. We had a very level playing field and uh, we had a wedding the following April, a Chinese wedding. And it was um, our very first public appearance was actually at the uh, midnight mass at the cathedral in Beijing, which was a Catholic cathedral, which was opened especially that year for the first time in many, many years um, for the foreign community. And they had uh, a Chinese choir, which was very impressive. And the following uh, week, we went to the Russian embassy for the annual hockey game, ice hockey game, which was held between the Russian uh, staff, who we thought probably were experts at hockey, ice hockey, and all of the rest of the world, any team you could put together. So we always depended on the Norwegians, especially, uh, and the Scandinavian uh, staff. But we had a few Americans who played, and uh, we all stood around and froze as we watched on this puddle of ice out there in the Russian embassy. And people saw us together, so lots of questions came up. That's how we met. It was quite, uh, qu quite incredible in any other uh, space of time or place that our paths would have crossed. But there we were. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, Leonard, you know, is perhaps best known as uh, being president of the United Auto Workers from 1970 to 1977. Mm -hmm. 
but could you tell us how he became involved in the labor movement? Well, he used to talk about the uh, the um, events when he was uh, about 16, maybe 17 years old. He had uh, had his, all of his formal education was in England, and he had come back to the United States when he was uh, 15 and a half. He'd been born in Providence, Rhode Island, so he was an American citizen. He, he returned here. His parents were in Windsor, uh, Canada, waiting for uh, the right proper paperwork to come back into the U.S. And his father was a tool and die maker at a factory, and he came home for lunch one day. And Leonard said he remembers his father and mother and himself at the table. They were having lunch, and then his dad didn't go back to work. And he remembers his mother saying something as though, why aren't you going back to work? And he said, no, none of us are going back. We went to work this morning, and it was announced by management that all of the women, female employees, would have only half of their salary from now on because they were women. And we have collectively decided we're not going to tolerate that, and we're not going back to work until they review that and change it as it had been. And so that was his beginning of a, of a sense of fairness for all. That was uh, something he, he never forgot through his whole lifetime. That, that uh, behavior was always important for him. Uh, on that note, he, you know, there are a lot of famous images of him you know, with civil rights leaders mm. like Cesar Chavez, Coretta Scott King marching arm in arm with her in mm-hmm. Atlanta. Uh, and that sense of fairness that he had, um, I, I mean, was that what influenced his work in the civil rights movement? And did he ever talk about his feelings about that? Well, I think that it, it was an important piece of how he felt uh, fair play. He, he strongly felt education was the opportunity provider for um, jobs that would be equal regardless of your skin color. Without that opportunity, then certainly there were limitations, um, again, regardless of your skin color. So he was a great uh, advocate for, for um, decent, good education available to all. And that played into his feelings about the workers at various factories and how, uh, particularly on the assembly line, that equal rights was an entitlement to both men and women, and uh, the age group, and you had a a perfect right to have a lunch break, and you had a perfect right to have a bathroom break, for example, and those were the issues early on that were so important, and they were working long hours, and so he used to talk about the discussions and the, the fights, not fist fights, but verbal discussions that they would have about Why have somebody, a group of people, work 14 hours when you could do two shifts, employ more people, and have everybody rested and some private time with their families, perhaps, and be able to do something besides just work, sleep, work, and sleep? Um, So all of those issues remained, really, until the time he died, important to him. Could you... uh you know, he did so much with the UAW, you know, he started um, at an early age, he 
became Walter Ruther's administrative assistant, mm-hmm. became vice president, and then went to uh, on to become president right. uh, in the seventies. That's, you know, a huge career. Can you tell us a, a, a little bit about that? Or was there anything he was particularly proud of uh, from his time with the union? I think he was, well, first let me say, he made it clear that he never expected to be president. He and Walter Reed, uh, Ruther were almost the same um, age. And so the rules of the, that had been accepted by the UAW were clearly that you did not run for office after your 65th birthday. And the terms of office then were decided to be three years, and that was later changed to four. But those three years, uh, if you were 64, you could run again if you so wished, and the, the rank and file uh, wanted to choose you. But after 65, uh, you did not run again. And I think the age difference was about a year between the two of them. I forget the, the exact number. But the plane crashed that caused the death of uh, Walter and May Ruther and the, um, the architect um, Stanislaus, I think. Oscar Stonerov. Stonerov, Stonerov, yes, Oscar Stonerov. He was with uh, May and Walter Ruther in the plane when it crashed. Um, at the um, Sheboygan Airport, uh, up in northern Michigan, uh, on their way, actually, to Black Lake, the education center being planned by Walter Ruther. And the um, certainly he carried on and believed in what Walter Ruther had stood for. Together they had fought for not only uh, health benefits for all and good health, but for education and for civil rights. Um, and tried very hard to, um, certainly with civil rights, to address the black and white issue, uh, which was so obvious. And so many of the people of color had moved from the South and uh, into the North. And uh, of course, were prominent in uh, not only working positions, but in leadership positions. They just weren't recognized in a fair way. So he stood for that. He, he wanted decent working hours, decent uh, working conditions. He was very involved with the, um, what did he call it? He, um, housekeeping. He would talk about the housekeeping in a factory. And many years later, and, and this is a part of a later story, when I met him and we would tour factories in China, he always wanted to know about the housekeeping. And it was fascinating to see some spotless and some not so spotless. But that was a concern. He was concerned about health issues such as hearing loss because of the factory noises that were um, not protected, loss of fingers because equipment was not uh, properly designed or properly utilized. I remember (laughs) there was a factory in China where you, you had three people working in this particular area and one man would push a button, another man would reach in and take a piece of a tool or something from underneath these two big uh, presses. And if the man who was pushing the button didn't pay attention, then the man lost his hand. Uh, And it was that kind of issue that seemed so obvious to most of us, but became an issue of concern for Leonard. He was always looking out for the improvement of the working man's conditions. 
so moving on, so he was a labor union mm-hmm. uh, leader for a long time. And then he goes on to become uh, a, an employee for the State Department mm. uh, under Jimmy, President Jimmy Carter. Can you uh, talk to us about uh, why he transitioned from organized labor to statesmanship? I can, and I will try to be as complete as possible, but some of the details have um, are foggy because of age, my age, not Leonard's from years ago. Um, he had been and played an instrumental role in the um, success of Jimmy Carter in the primary system. And he had been approached first by the retirees in Florida. And they, they had come to him as a group while he was president of the UAW. And they said, we'd like you to look at Jimmy Carter, uh, governor of, of Georgia. We like him, and we'd like to know what you think about him as a candidate for president. And Leonard met with him several times, and he was impressed with many aspects of President Carter and thought that he was, yes, willing to, uh, work. if he was willing to run and go through the primary system, he was willing uh, to go ahead to support him as much as he could, and he certainly saw him as being the best choice among the many uh, at that time that were running. And when it came to the Michigan primary, if President Carter had not won the Michigan primary that particular day, he likely would not have become the candidate. But uh, with Leonard's, he always gave Leonard credit for helping him. Now, Leonard only had one vote, but he did have um, a respect of many, many people. Uh, who listened, uh, they didn't follow his orders, but they certainly listened to his impressions. And he was very careful not to be giving orders. And I, I watched that with awe many times. He was, uh, he could make suggestions, but it was not in a, in a mean way at all or a dictatorial way. Not that I ever saw. But he could certainly, he always had a background of why he believed the way he did. So when uh, President Carter took office in Washington, they offered Leonard many positions, and Leonard made it very clear he did not assist um, uh, the Carter nomination for a position in Washington. And so he kept saying no. The rank and file had elected him to be president through the month of May, and he, no matter what, was going to meet that commitment. And they uh, were rather persistent about uh, giving him something because of his negotiating skills. And at uh, one point said, would you consider being the ambassador to China so that you could negotiate with the Chinese for normal relations? And he did consider that. And he said, I will uh, accept the offer if you will take care of it in your first term early on, and uh, I will do nothing until the the 1st of July uh, because my commitment will be met to the UAW by that time. So he felt strongly about that. And that was his beginnings as an ambassador. Uh, And it was a senatorial appointment uh, that was agreed to immediately. He became the fourth uh, envoy to the liaison office And he became then, after successfully negotiating uh, the normal relations, became, with senatorial approval, the first 
American U.S. ambassador to the People's Republic of China. Um, and I was luckily part of that. It was a fantastic time and uh, a piece of history that is so remarkable because of the speed with which China went from cultural revolution and cabbage only for the winter to having a grocery store four years later with, with British mustard and American hot dogs available. It was just a remarkable period of time. And one of my favorite photos from his collection is of you holding the Bible as he swears in oh, as ambassador. Yes. What was it like being over there at that time, you know, living in the embassy and, and you know, going beyond the walls there in this country that's rapidly changing? It was rapidly changing, and it was... Um, Every day was a new normal. Every day was a surprise. Some days were dusty and some were full of sunshine, but every day was interesting. Uh, the, the, the ambassador's residence and the office were side by side on a corner lot, and the uh, Congolese or Upper Volta, one of those um, missions also was a duplicate of what we had. And the Chinese had this two books that were quite wonderful. One was a design of the uh, building, and the other was the empty plot of land. And they said, this is your building, and this will be the plot of land. And that was the decision made of where the residence would be. And they would build the residences and the offices. So security, of course, was always a question. And um, some days was uh, funnier than others. But um, it was guards on the gate. We could walk any place we wanted. Uh, foreigners could come into the compound. Uh, Chinese could not come in without an invitation, and they had to have a proper piece of paper. We could go out to the gate and walk in somebody, uh, but we had to stay right with them as we walked them in. There was no lock on the front door. It was a, a double wooden doors that looked quite, um, quite wonderful, but in fact it was very... Uh, thin plywood that you could have put your fist through if you'd wanted to. Uh, we had roses in the front, a little bit of a circular driveway, and we had um, an outdoor patio and then a large reception room, dining room, and upstairs a couple of bedrooms and uh, a small kitchen upstairs. And we had a house staff that um, were very helpful, certainly to me, because uh, setting a table with 13 pieces of silver and seven glasses was not something a nurse had done before. So it was, we had to chuckle. And Leonard and I just had to laugh about a lot of in events. The oven that was in the, the kitchen was one that you lit with a flame and then put your elbow in to see how hot it was because there was no temperature control. Oh my gosh. Um, but we did have city water, so we had water, and we had flush toilets. And so, you know, we were in the middle of a city, but we just didn't have a stove that had uh, temperature control that showed. And uh, we would often, with receptions, have the cook would give me an assignment when we were desperately going to have 16 more people than we had thought and needed another round table put together. And um, you just had to, to chuckle as time went on. The... Um, we tried to see every group of Chinese that were coming to the States for the first time, 
and we would hold a reception for them. We would have a map out against the wall to show them where they were going to go. Uh, we would always serve food with uh, forks, knives, and spoons so that we'd be acquainted with that. And now, of course, uh, China is uh, it's like going to New York City in so many ways. But then it was the, at the end of the Cultural Revolution. Clothing was just changing from the, the rather uh, dull-colored uh, brown and blue tops and bottoms. Um, now uh, Fifth Avenue walks down the street, but uh, then it was very different, and people would come and we would serve uh, whatever food was appropriate. I remember the uh, the weightlifters from the Olympics, the American weightlifters, came at one point for a reception, and they their luggage had not gotten off the plane with them, and so they were big, uh, strong, burly fellows, and no heavy coats to wear. The military police that were guarding the gate took their coats off and gave them to them to wear while they were there. It was very touching, but they, they had a camaraderie. Uh, the basketball players would come, and we would have the, the Chinese basketball players come also at the same time, and uh, it was special. So cool. Have you been back there since? I have. Uh, we can. We came home officially in 1981, and then um, went back immediately. Actually, we came home in the spring, and we were back there in uh, September, October, and we continued to go back every year, once, twice, sometimes three times, uh, until um, 1996. So we made lots of trips back, and we continued to see the advance of the people and the change in the clothing and the, the advancement of the East Coast versus the West Coast. And many of the discussions in those very early days around the dining room table, because there was no meeting room. So, But we would sit, Leonard would sit, and I got to observe in most cases, um, how, how do you develop a country from east to west. How did you develop your country from east to west? And this was before computers and the email. So we were talking about how to spread line on poles. And um, they were quite amazed. And the vision that he and Deng Xiaoping had that was so similar for what could happen and what actually did happen for China is it's changed dramatically, of course, since then. But their vision was economic advancement for the people, a better standard of living, and by all means, better educational opportunities. And the uh, American universities, of course, were happy to accept Chinese students, and they would the leadership from the universities would come over, and they would negotiate uh, gently about how many Chinese can we take, and. Leonard would say things like, uh, wait just a minute, you might want to think about taking 5,000. That's a lot of students to take. Oh, that's, that's another thought. Perhaps 500 to start with would be more reasonable. But uh, the exchange programs were very successful. And it was interesting to always, when possible, I really don't mean always, but when possible, to have those same groups that we had introduced the United States to with a map and a fork and a spoon, when they came back, have them come again and give them a Chinese meal this time because they may be tired of hamburgers and, and hot dogs, but ask them what they found 
different than they had expected to find. And usually the answer would be something to do with the disposable way that we lived, throwing away the paper napkins, paper plates, the silver, the plastic. Why don't your um, family members live with you? How can you let them go off and live someplace else? When they're older, you let them go someplace else or send them someplace else. Um, that was all very, very new to them. And uh, we tried to answer the questions as honestly as possible. But uh, very smart questions they were asking. It really seems like his uh, you know, career as a labor leader really set him up well to be an ambassador for mm-hmm. our country. You know, not just well, at first as a negotiator bringing mm-hmm. two sides together, but also thinking about those less advantaged and advocating for them. Yes. Yes, that's probably true. I hadn't quite thought about it that way, but he, his background of um, advocating for not the downtrodden, but those without opportunity certainly was very, um, very much a role in his life. And he continued as we went back and forth to China. He continued to work with companies, of, uh, whether they were building something or uh, uh, just a CPA uh, group or a group of lawyers who uh, were curious about what his his opinion was on various subjects. And he continued to uh, very freely uh, be interested in talking to various groups. He was always open to a phone call. And um, it was, and we never tried to hide. Uh, the, the phone number was always public, and now with social media, it probably would have been more so even. But we welcomed phone calls. So I'm glad you brought up Deng Xiaoping uh, and his close relationship with Leonard. And for those of you who don't know, Deng Xiaoping is probably the second most famous leader of communist China after Mao Zedong. Uh, he was one of the most influential leaders in that country's history, and a lot of people call him the architect of modern China. Uh, he was, and uh, and I just thought, I was wondering if you could tell us about their personal relationship together. They had a special relationship, Leonard Woodcock and Deng Xiaoping. They had many meetings together. Some of them were very official uh, and always with a translator. And the informal meetings were also with a translator. But his, Deng Xiaoping was very quick. He had simultaneous translations. He was uh, well-read. He had a good knowledge of, he could walk around the world, for example, in his comments in a formal meeting with other government leaders. And you would walk around the world by saying what happened, what was going on in Egypt and what was going on in Eritrea, and then your mind would go to the next country, what was going on in India. And you would walk around the world with your comments, and he was very good at doing this in these formal meetings with government leaders. His meetings with Leonard in an official capacity uh, were often, um, they were always um, cordial. They were often of uh, one having a different opinion from another. And the opportunity to express yourself in agreeing or disagreeing was available. 
in the very last official meeting that he had with Deng Xiaoping regarding normalization, now this may have been the next to the last meeting, I'd have to check, but he was um, given a piece of paper that was all in English at that point with the, um, the items that were different and the that the, uh, Leonard could agree to and the items that he could not agree to. And he looked at that piece of paper and he had his translator read them to him and speak in Chinese, and he said, in some English, half and half, he'd say, yes, agree, no, and went down the whole list and gave it back to Leonard. And there was, a, there was one more meeting that followed that, as I remember. But it was a remarkable event, um, and I believe that's the one that was held late at night, unexpectedly. The, each meeting was... Um, not broadcast, it was uh, done behind the scenes, so people knew that something was going on, but they weren't sure of exactly the progress that was being made. The last meeting we had with Deng Xiaoping was one that occurred after the Tiananmen incident. And it was probably, and I think both of them recognized that they weren't, I'll cry. Um, that they would not meet again. And uh, that was certainly true. And they talked about the vision that they had for both countries and for the peoples of both countries. And they weren't syrupy at all about what was going to happen because nobody knows. They talked about, though, in a realistic way, uh, what changes the economy was going to make. Neither of them dreamed about the, or could recognize the changes the computer was going to make to the world. Uh, and in not too many years, it had made dramatic changes. They both were extraordinary people who met at a time in history and made a difference. And they um, shook hands at the end of that meeting and then gave each other a hug, which was unusual. And, um, and then we left. It was a formal meeting over at the Great Hall of the People. Um, that's where many of the meetings took place. But the great meeting at our house, our residence with Deng Xiaoping, happened on uh, January 1st of 1978. And normalization had been declared on the 15th of uh, December, but the actual exchange of embassies happened on the 1st of uh, January. Hey, this is Troy. Sharon later clarified that normalization with China was announced on December 15, 1978, and the reception was actually held on January 1st, 1979. Now, let's get back to Sharon. And he had already agreed in one of the meetings dealing with um, normalization. Leonard had proposed, with the White House's knowledge, of course, um, a trip to the United States. And Deng Xiaoping had this piece of paper talking about that event, and he said, I'll go. And the piece of paper said a leader from China, but he said, I'll go. 
Um, he had two wishes for travel, he said later. He had been to Japan and where he wanted to go in the United States, and so he came. Um, but he came to the U.S., uh, let's see, the end of January, early February of 78. But this event at the house was specifically for celebrating the normalization process and having formal embassies. And so the sign on the gate was changed from liaison office to the embassy of the United States, for example. And it was, um, the residence was not very large and we were gonna have a great number of very high level people. And the, there was a curtain uh, next to the staircase that went upstairs that had been there from the time of the building being built and it was so shabby. I'll never forget, we could, it was huge. And I couldn't get the right fabric ordered to get it changed. And so we always wondered if people were listening uh, at, to conversations. And I was fussing one day about, as I walked up the staircase about this um, discolored curtain. And it wasn't but two days later that we had a curtain man out there to put a new curtain oh, up. Wow. And I, as I was going up the stairs that day, I said, you know, Deng Xiaoping's going to be here and he's going to see this shabby curtain. <laughs> but we go, So we knew that there was a microphone someplace, and I'm sure that there were many in the residence in uh, Washington also. It, there was great equality in the um, snooping on uh, all sides. And it, it, from the time immemorial, there has been that. The, um, but he came and he sat on a couch with Leonard. Everybody had their protocol seats, spaces. It was quite a festive occasion. And Deng Xiaoping turned to Leonard at one point and he said to him with a translator speaking, he said, is there anything I can do for you? And Leonard looked at him with a straight face and said very quickly, he said, yes, take back one more letter. And he said, I, you know, what, what do you mean? And he said, your people gave me, meaning your officials, when I came here, Wu Da Ka Ka. Now, most Chinese names are three symbols, three words, three sounds. And you gave me a fourth one. So I want you to take that, they called it the more letter, the extra letter. I want you to take that away. And Deng Xiaoping shook his finger and he said, too late too late <laughs> and so that was the way it was what was the his Wu-da-ka-ka ah. for woodcock and so and we called him lao wu lao meaning older and our respected elder and so he was lao wu for all our trips from then on so but Wu-da-ka-ka was his formal name and that's what all of his name cards said was Wu-da-ka-ka well, that's great yeah Sharon Woodcock has more great stories, so be sure to check back in for part two of her interview in a few weeks. Or, even better, subscribe to Tales from the Ruther Library in your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. 
The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. How was that? Sounded good. Seriously? Oh, my God. Getting better with this thing. Yeah. It's taking me two and a half years. I'm finally getting it down. <laughs> Jeez. No flubs. No embarrassments. What is wrong? Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's I, I confusing. Know. I know. It's, 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 it's this pandemic. I'm able to hone my craft. <laughs> craft of podcasting. I wonder if I can get a major in podcasting now. Switch my careers. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you could. Now, Troy, you were supposed to say, don't quit your day job, Dan. Oh, oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Dan, you are invaluable and irreplaceable at the Ruther, and we couldn't possibly exist without you. Well, thank you very much. That's very You're nice welcome. of you. But, uh, but I was thinking more as like, no, you suck at this podcasting. Don't quit your day job. <laughs> oh. <laughs>